that diversified rotation shining through with having pulse crops in two or four years and winter wheat. So, you know, you get that nitrogen input in two or four years, meaning you can reduce um, your nitrogen fertilizer applications over that four year period. And then having winter wheat that makes use of late season uh, fall nitrogen, if there is some, and then early spring nitrogen. So, um, you know, there isn't one rotation that wins for all metrics um, in one geography, but this is where agronomy is not black and white and it's always shades of gray. Hello everyone and welcome to the Growing Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Boychin. Our goal with this podcast is simple, to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. And today we're talking with Dr. Sherry Stridehorse. Dr. Stridehorse graduated from the University of Alberta with a PhD in plant science in 2008, has been working in ag for the last 15 years. She has been the executive director for the Alberta Pulse Growers. She was a research scientist for Alberta Agriculture and Rural Development for seven years. Uh, she is the author or co-author on 15 peer-reviewed publications. She was the agronomy research specialist at the Alberta Wheat Commission and Alberta Barley Commissions. And now she runs her own ag consulting business, focusing on research strategy, research pri priority setting, and extension, among other things. She's also a professional agrologist. She also is the chairperson of the Prairie Grains Development Committee, and she coordinates the Alberta Cereal Grain Regional variety trials and silage regional variety trials. She's leading the extension for resilient rotation projects, which is what we're here to discuss today. Resilient rotations, uh, which is part of the integrated crop agronomy cluster. It was partly funded by the Alberta Wheat Commission, and it looks to get an understanding of the impacts of rotation types in many locations across the prairies. Uh, so Sherry, I mean, we've been talking about cropping rotations for I mean decades this has been a topic of discussion for a long time um you know what kind of gaps are we trying to fill with this research considering um you know how much we know and how much research has gone into it and and you know how is this going to be helpful for farmers but also um the discussion of the benefits of of crop rotation and extended crop rotations for risk mitigation has been around for many years as well you know are we seeing a lack of extended rotations on the prairies and if we are why are we seeing this what's going on um, are there challenges that producers come against to, to kind of meet these crop rotation uh i guess expectations um or have our goals or or perceived targets of crop rotation changed thanks jeremy you know i think as you said, the research has for many years shown the benefits of diversifying our crop rotations. And then we look at the data to see what farmers are actually growing. And there is such a tendency towards short and simple rotations. In the northern prairies, there is that strong tendency for cereal oil seed, or maybe I should spell it out and say it's a wheat canola rotation on so many acres. And then um in the southern prairies that a Durham lentil rotation is very, very dominant. And we look into the Red River Valley and there it's a canola soybean wheat rotation. And these simple rotations are not what the research shows, um, you know, should be practices. And I put that that should be in air quotes. Um, 
The reason for these simplified rotations, though, are the result of many factors that on farm workload, the farm size as farms get bigger and um, fewer farms are out there um, in Western Canada, that ease of management happens when you're trying to manage two crop types instead of four or five. And it's a result of economics and logistics. We have a survey out kind of looking at what's driving crop rotation choices. And the number one answer is coming back to the economics, which um, certainly I understand and greatly respect. And, um, you know, what we're going to talk about in some of the data in this resilient rotation project does show how economical these are, but that doesn't mean um, that Western Canadian farmers aren't being pressed to increase their yields while reducing inputs. And I think that goes to some of the fertilizer policy conversations that are happening at a federal level. There's pressure from our consumers um, to have a reduced environmental impact of food production. And at the end of the day, growers need help to sort through all of this and um, figure out what they can really do to economically um, maintain viability on the farm and that long-term sustainability so their farms can be there for future generations. Yeah, it, and if uh, you want me to touch on a couple of the numbers on the stats, um, you know, in Manitoba, that um, canola is grown on 37% of the acres. Um, in Alberta, canola is grown on 35% of the acres. And when you look um, kind of north of uh, the Yellowhead Highway, it's grown on 50% of the acres each year. And, you know, that tells me there's a pretty simple crop rotation in Saskatchewan um, is at 33% canola. So there's heavily dominance on canola, which makes so much economic sense. And we want producers to make money, but we, we need to look at this in maybe a longer term lens as well. You know, one thing that, that, you know, comes to mind is obviously market who we selling to, what price we're getting for those, who's actually asking for this and diversifying rotation comes with logistical challenges of, you know, where's my market that I'm selling to and and the cost of diesel, how far am I moving that now? Do I have the bins to, to store this different crop? And like you said, the, the, the complexity is, is enormous, but it, you know, I can't help but wonder um, with the evolving desires of uh, consumers and the increased pressure of um, environmental considerations and sustainability, which I feel like is going to come with that tag of what is your rotation? Um, is that market in and of itself? Do we do we perceive that as maybe changing and then uh, maybe shifting the ground in which farmers can work? And I know I'm being a little bit uh, I'm I'm looking into the crystal ball, but it, you know it just it makes me wonder whether. You know, the market's going to kind of drive this on its own. Yeah, and I think the market does drive it. And I think, you know, all the canola crushing capacity that's been built in recent years on the Canadian prairies really supports these type of rotations that we have. And it's really hard to argue about that. But, you know, I think right now, one of the things we're going to talk about is... um that right now our heavy dominance on canola rotations is at risk due to clubroot and blackleg. And right now we have genetic solutions that are working to maintain that heavy dominance of canola in the rotation. But if or when maybe I should say that resistance breaks down, we do need to be ready for other options um, to diversify our crop rotation. And, you know, if you can't grow canola 
three out of four years, what other options are there? And markets will, um, to some degree, have to adjust. And um, th- th- it's so complex. And I'm definitely not a marketer. <laughs> so, you know, understanding the complexity of this and and all of these aspects are constantly shifting. Um, you know, maybe that speaks for itself for the value of continued research in this crop rotation discussion. So Resilient Rotations um, is looking to tackle some of these understandings, provide some, some uh, information for producers. So could you give me an idea of who's involved in this project and, and the breadth in which it's looking at? Yeah, so it's a, a huge team. And, you know, I really want to put a huge shout out to Quilu, who is the lead on the project. So he is a scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada based out of Swift Current. Now, in addition to Qui, who is the principal investigator on this project, we've got the expertise in the areas of soil fertility, in economics, in disease, in weed management, Um nutrient cycling. We've got uh, a ton of expertise from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada and also from the University of Manitoba and the University of Alberta. So my role in this project is really tiny on the extension and, um, you know, I am standing on the the shoulders of such a, a strong scientific team. Well, it, it takes it takes everyone to pull this together and um, the extension and, and expertise side is I, don't sell yourself short, Sherry. I'm sure you provide a lot of value to the project. So, oh, that's 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 wonderful to hear. So with this many people involved, it, I would imagine it's 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 research that's being conducted all across in different locations of Western Canada. Yeah, so, you know, there are seven sites across Western Canada, and we've kind of tried to group them um, in terms of similar geography. So we've got uh, Northern Prairies, Southern Prairies, and Red River Valley are the three geographic areas. And in the Northern Prairies are Beaver Lodge up in the Peace region, Lacombe, which is in the center of Alberta on very rich black soil. Then we have Scott and Melfort in Saskatchewan. And those are the four northern prairie sites. In terms of the southern prairie sites, we have a dry land site at Lethbridge and a swift current site. And then one site at Carmen, Manitoba, um, representing the Red River Valley. So when when selecting sites for a project like this, um, it seems like we want to capture as many of these growing zones as possible, or at least have multiple locations in these growing zones. Are we trying to target a certain number of locations? And I realize economics of the process of the projects play a role in this, but is there a certain threshold we, we try and meet to make sure that the information that's coming from this is, um, I guess, solid enough to give producers recommend- recommendations on? Yeah, so, you know, there is, I think, two factors there. There are number of sites, but number of years that we test as well. So um, this study has run for a cycle of four years, and we've got fully phased rotations at most sites. Um, So when we go um, four years times each location, we start getting actually a good volume of data. Um, One of the things that has been done is uh, funding has been applied for, for a second cycle to kind of double the amount of data and we'll be finding out about that. But, you know, research locations were also very much selected based on the capacity. This is not research that can be done anywhere and everywhere. And um, selection of these Ag Canada sites and the University of Manitoba sites are also driven by where there is the manpower and the equipment to do this type of work. So you 
we hit on the locations and then you, you, you talked about the, the actual rotations a little bit. So what are, what are the rotations that we're dealing with? I mean, just working in as an agronomist in Alberta and parts of Saskatchewan, you see so many types of rotation and, and you see typical ones, but you've seen producers manage different challenges with different rotations and, and inserting different crops into, into the rotation at different timings. So how, how do you come up with rotation groups or, or treatments that feel representative of the decisions that producers are making in Western Canada? So, you know, this is kind of, there's some flexibility, but there are kind of six standard rotations that we have, and there are different species um, in the Southern prairies versus the Northern prairies, just based on geographic adaptability. But the six that we have are a control rotation, a market-driven rotation, an intensified rotation, a diversified rotation, high risk and soil health. And I'll just tell you a little bit about those. So the control rotation actually represents kind of that traditionally recommended rotation in each zone. Um, so for example, in the Southern Prairies, there is a fallow phase in that rotation. Um, so that's kind of what that control is, maybe that historical, traditionally recommended one for each ecozone. Southern Prairies, um, it is actually a lentil durum, chickpea durum rotation. So um, that that also is very typical of what is going on in that area. And then in the Red River Valley, the intensified or that common rotation is the wheat, soybean, canola rotation that is, is so often seen there. So that's the intensified rotation. Then we have a diversified rotation that um, it the goal there is to have two pulse crops. And we've also starting to pull winter cereals in. So we start to get you know, uh, diversifying and able to take up nitrogen at different times and more nitrogen inputs from the pulse crop. We have the market-driven rotation where the crop types are based on um, selecting the commodity prices at the time of planting. So you kind of go, oh, it's March, April, C price of canola is very high. And as such, we actually have canola in the rotation three or four years. Um, that's that market-driven rotation. And there's also higher fertility on that one. So that was that really pushing that one. The high risk rotation is where we have new crop species that may require new um, resources in the form of genetics, agronomy or equipment, um, but it could potentially have very high economic rewards. And the example there would be, for example, putting soybean up in Beaver Lodge. And then the soil health rotation, as you can imagine, there's a green manure year. Um, there are intercrops with pulses and winter cereals. So those are are the six rotations and as I mentioned they are the crop species are selected to be geographically relevant and therefore they varied among the sites. So I'm, I'm curious to thresh out that soil health one a little bit because I would have from my understanding of discussions in soil health as it pertains to crop rotations and green manure and intercropping is the targets in which we're seeking to increase soil health may change based on the agroecological zone in which we're working in. So are these soil health rotations, how are they representing each of those soil zones for those targets and who's setting that target? Because the green manure 
varieties or, or species that you may select in one region may be different than another. So just curious if you could thresh out the selection process a little bit more. Yeah, and this was done under Cui's leadership. Um, in the northern prairies, the first um, crop is a forage pea green manure, so that nitrogen fixer. Then that's followed by winter wheat um, because we're able to get that green manure off early enough to then plant winter wheat. And the winter wheat the following year is followed by faba bean. And actually we do have um, canola as the, the fourth year in that green manure rotation. So that's the northern prairies. In the southern prairies, it again starts with the forage pea green manure. But then there's a pea barley intercrop, a faba bean barley intercrop in the third year and Durham in the fourth year. And the Red River Valley has yeah, a diverse species of green manure, fall rye, corn soybean intercrop, and then a canola pea intercrop. So you can see how there is geographic relevance in how these crop types are selected for that soil health rotation. Um, so with all these different locations and these different rotations, um, how was fertility managed for these different locations? Was it kept consistent? Did it vary? What did that look like? So it did vary for each site and for each rotation. And it was based on soil tests. So for each of the treatments, you know, there was the soil test from the control rotation, intensified, diversified, so forth. And um, target yields based on each geography for each crop species. So there were, you know, tons and tons of different fertility rates being used. And the other thing I want to comment on is that that market-driven rotation um, did take the recommended fertility and actually um, multiply it by 1.2 times just to push yield that much harder with extra nitrogen in that system. So it was very custom and you know that is reflected in the the work we do on the nitrogen use efficiency and and then the economics because the more fertility you put on one rotation or at one location there are different fertilizer prices for that so would the intensified rotation also include something that i guess i i picture intensified as as you know pushing the envelope agronomically did that fall in that category as well you know, maybe that name intensified rotation is a little misleading. I think it's intensified in that it is so dominant on um, wheat canola or durum lentil is, is maybe how that could be better defined. Um, it was that market driven one where they were um, pushing the management more so with the extra fertility. So all of this data collected on on all of these different rotation types in different regions um the data that came from it was was perceived or or, or managed and, and outputted in certain categories nitrogen use efficiency net revenue yield and yield stability um, why did we fall on on these outputs in terms of what this means um and what did we actually see so I guess that's what we're going to talk about today, um, because I think those are the pieces of information that farmers 
first want um, and, and maybe they're most timely. So at the end of the day, I think we've all heard that yield is king. Um, so that's where that yield piece, we couldn't have the rest of these conversations without first talking about yield. Um, maybe a more interesting part there and getting a little deeper is looking at yield stability. And we'll talk about that when we get to that. And that's, you know, um, do you have a, a 30 bushel crop one year, a 70 the next year, or do you have more of that 50, 50, 50? So that's that yield stability component. Um, of course, economics are our king. We've got a survey out that I'm going to promote a little later in the podcast, but um, some of the early indications are that when someone is selecting um, a crop rotation, that's the first determining factor is it needs to make the money. And of course, that makes perfect sense. And then we included that nitrogen use efficiency piece very largely because of some of the policy conversations that are going on and um, just making sure that producers have the tools um if there are requirements to alter their their fertility plans and what crop rotations can help be tools to manage nutrient use efficiency, uh, both for a policy reason, but economics and um, an environmental stewardship reason as well. It's nice to know the nitrogen you're putting down is getting the most use. Absolutely. Maybe explain to me, um, how, I mean, we're looking at different crops in different regions, how how do we compare yields um, and and collate all that together so it makes sense as a as a um, combined comparison? Absolutely. And, you know, Kui has come up with a concept called canola equivalent yield. And, you know, it's really tough to compare the yield of a soybean to the yield of barley, for example. And what this canola equivalent yield does is it puts everything in on a level playing field. And it's based on the price ratio of different crop types relative to canola. So I, I know that's sounding um, a little vague, but I'm going to go through an example. So if you've got CWRS wheat at $12 a bushel and canola is $20 a bushel, 12 divided by 20 is 0.6 times a 70 bushel CWRS crop, your canola equivalent yield of your CWRS wheat is 42 bushels. And then if we look at a canola example, again, if canola is $20 a bushel divided by $20 times a 40 bushel yield, the canola equivalent yield of that canola crop is 40 bushels. So this conversion was done to all the yields so we can put everything on a level playing field to um, to make these comparisons between the different rotations um, by using this concept of canola equivalent yield. My only question then to that is the green manure. Well, did that go through the same process? Was that was that yield comparison made the same way? So for the green manure, there was no harvestable yield in in the that year, just like there was no harvestable yield in the fallow year in the southern prairies. So the the yield there is zero. Because okay, that's good. Zero. That's good zero. to clarify. I just I wanted to make sure I, I my mind was going in that direction, but I wanted to make sure. So I I can only assume that that's going to play a huge role in terms of the economics Absolutely. results that we see from this. So, um, okay, and, and nitrogen use efficiency. How did how did we measure that? 
Yeah, so nitrogen use efficiency is the ratio of grain yield expressed in that concept of canola equivalent yield divided by available N. And available N is the soil mineral N plus the applied fertilizer. So for example, um, your soil health rotation would have a lot bigger proportion of the nitrogen coming from your green manure and a smaller proportion from your mineral nitrogen fertilizer. So it's the yield per amount of available um, nitrogen fertilizer that we've got. Okay. And the last one, net net revenue. Um, I'm sure we can, you could make that as complex or as simple uh, in a trial like this um, as you wanted, but what was involved in that calculation? You know, to keep things from being too confusing for a podcast, um, I'm just going to simply say that it is um, the value of the yield. So, $12 a bushel times the bushels that were grown, subtracting the costs. And I'll just clarify that average crop prices were indexed over the past 10 years and crop um, input prices were based on a typical farm price in Saskatchewan because there's good um, Saskatchewan government data on that. And that I think is all I'll say on, on that piece for net revenue. Broadly speaking, what did we see as comparisons between these different crop rotations in the different regions? So, you know, I think one of the things that we did see was that there wasn't consistency across locations. Different things worked in the northern prairies versus the southern prairies versus the Red River Valley, which I don't think is too surprising. So I think it's important that we take um, a geographical lens to this. But there were a couple of consistent things across all geographies. And the first is that if you didn't have species well adapted to the growing area, things went terribly. So growing soybeans in Beaver Lodge with genetics that weren't adapted, um, growing faba beans um, under dry land conditions at Swift Current was a bad idea. And those things consistently came through making that high risk um, treatment be quite poor because of, you know, anytime you get an incredibly poor yield, there's a poor yield, it impacts your nitrogen use efficiency and your net revenue. So I think that was the first thing is make sure you're growing well adapted species. The other big trend we saw was just how poor the soil health rotation performed. And this was a um, poor performance as assessed by all metrics. And what was driving this was that lack of yield in one of the four years. And what maybe surprised, I think, the research team was that, um, you know, we often think of it as growing nitrogen for a year. The economics of that didn't really compensate um, over the, the four-year period. So um, if the soil health rotation is going to be adopted on wider acres. Um, there needs to be a way for producers to have a positive metric, um, some form of financial compensation for that year where there is no harvestable yield. That's an interesting. I see you scowling. <clears throat> oh, I'm just I'm I'm thinking about. Um, well, my first thing that comes to mind is what might be. Um, the challenge as to was it done like what were what were the targets of that of that rotation and was it meeting what everyone perceives as soil health and and targeting and um I guess the 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 critical look at that because um to mention it it failed in all metrics and and that would be you know nitrogen use efficiency and net revenue and yield and yield stability um is there ways 
know, after pulling all that data in um, and after looking at these comparatively, other than, um, you know, maybe, and I don't want to go towards the word of subsidy of, of having that green manure in there for the sake of, of having um, a more resilient or soil health crop rotation. Uh, from the outside looking in, are there tactics that producers could implement or other integration into the system, maybe like cattle that could help mitigate the loss from that green manure? Yeah, and I think that's complicated um, when we start talking about manures, for example, and um, and grazing in a system. So I'm going to stay away from that. But one of the things maybe I alluded to, but it really wasn't clear, is that um, we've got winter wheat in that rotation in the northern prairies. And if there's an eco label where the producer actually gets some sort of a price premium from that winter wheat, um, because it has that winter ground cover. You know, these are other ways for producers to gain more revenue from the system. Or um, if this system actually has reduced herbicide costs, because we have some of these intercrops that are competing more with weeds, there are different marketing tactics that would, um, I think, maybe change the price premiums of this. But at the end of the day, it, um, you know, if you are getting the same commodity price for what you're growing, it, it's really tough to make it work um, in that kind of a system. I mean, either way, very important information for a producer who is who is looking to um, implement something similar to this soil health rotation, um, understanding and, that there's, yeah. And I think, you know, the other component is um, there are some areas, maybe you wouldn't put a green manure across the whole farm. Um, are there certain fields that might need um to, to have some restoration on them, whereas others, maybe those incredibly high quality soils might be able to get away without that. So while I've talked about geographic differences, this study does not get into a field by field basis. And at the end of the day, whenever any farmers implementing rotations, they are considering the constraints and the challenges they have on an individual field basis. Yeah, the, gr the granularity perspectives to take to this to farm, um, obviously, increase the complexity of decision making enormously um it's a great overview of of maybe what we saw across western canada are there specific trends that were seen in some of these different regions that that we could say you know in in the southern prairies this is definitely um something that that we're seeing as a consistent result so in the southern prairies, um, you know, the one consistent performer was that intensified rotation. And I'll review that that is the lentil durum, chickpea durum rotation. Um, and what was um, great about that was having those two pulse crops in the rotation. Um, so we've got that nitrogen fixing piece that helps to... Um, reduce some of the input costs that we see with that rotation and some of the nitrogen needs in that rotation. So I think if there's a recommendation for the Southern Prairies, it is um, making sure you select more than just two crop species. So try and move away from just a Durham lentil rotation to maybe stretching it to be a uh, a Durham lentil, Durham chickpea rotation, and including at least um, two pulse crops in four of those years would kind of be the, the trend that we saw with the Southern prairies. And for the, the Northern um, and uh, um, 
the northern Alberta and northern uh, Sask regions, did we see some trends in these locations? So in these regions, so we've got the Beaver Lodge, Lacombe and Melfort and Scott, um, you know, here, I think we just had consistently poor performance from the high risk rotation and the soil health rotation. We've kind of talked about the reasons for that. But um, if there was maybe some trends from the rotations that we could pull out is again, selecting one with more than two crop species and more pulse crops in the rotation are better. And um, one of the things that we saw was um, a lot of similarities between that intensified and that diversified rotation. And I'll just remind you, the intensified rotation is the wheat canola rotation, whereas the diversified rotation has pea, winter wheat, faba bean, and canola. And in many times in the northern prairies, those two were similar, but that diversified rotation gets two pulse crops in there and winter wheat to have some, some winter crop cover. So I think there are opportunities in those northern regions to, you know, I it's hard to go completely from wheat canola to a four-year rotation, but to start taking some of those elements from the diversified rotation and putting them into practice. So those, just to make sure I understand, intensified and diversified rotations in the northern prairies in both Alberta and Saskatchewan, we saw consistent results. And that was comparing a two-crop rotation to a four crop rotation so my question is 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 that true of all three of those categories that we base this on nitrogen use efficiency net revenue yield and yield stability or are we talking specifically economic Okay, so I, I want to make it clear that um, this trend is for Alberta, much more so than Saskatchewan, where those two are are more similar. So let's start with that. Um, and it's not consistent across all rotations um, it, it, or, or across all metrics being net revenue, yield, or... Um, um, nitrogen use efficiency. So there are bits and pieces, but you know, at the end of the day, that intensified rotation, um, it makes perfect sense why growers are putting that on the land. The economics are there in the Northern regions, um, but it is such a risky practice. So if it was just economics, in the northern prairies, um, putting more canola in that rotation does make sense. But we kind of go, well, the diversified rotation in terms of yield can achieve many of the same things. And we start needing to look at economics maybe over a longer time period and factoring in the risk of disease when we have a very heavily canola intensified rotation. Well, I mean, you can't help but think of risk mitigation when you have two eggs in the basket and, and, and spreading that over, over multiple crops, whether market changes are impacting one or two, one of two of those crops or both of those crops. When you have four, um, hopefully you're able to mitigate some of that risk on the market side. So, um, and yeah, I think it, maybe also on the, the nitrogen use efficiency side, that's where we really maybe saw that, um, 
that diversified rotation shining through with having pulse crops in two of four years and winter wheat. So, you know, you get that nitrogen input in two of four years, meaning you can reduce um, your nitrogen fertilizer applications over that four year period. And then having winter wheat that makes use of late season uh, fall nitrogen, if there is some, and then early spring nitrogen. So, um, you know, there isn't one rotation that wins for all metrics um, in one geography, but this is where agronomy is not black and white and it's always shades of gray. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, thinking about this as a whole and, and producers and agronomists making decisions on farm in different different parts of Western Canada, um, how... What may be the best way to approach the results that have been shared from this trial when you're looking to make decisions? Because, um, you know, there's going to be multiple pieces of information pertaining to these um, different different categories of, of results, right? Nitrogen use efficiency, net revenue, yield and yield stability. So if I'm in if I'm in southern Alberta and I'm looking at these these um, results that have been shared um, on the Resilient Rotations website. Um, how am I, what's the best way to go about that? So if you are in Southern Alberta and you have had uh, on dry land, um, a lentil durum rotation, try and switch that up to be a lentil durum, chickpea durum rotation when the markets are going to help you out. If if the price of chickpeas tanks, that's that's a tough recommendation to make. But, um, or even putting canola in one of those um, phases. So it's small baby steps that we can make. And I think those baby steps need to be, um, try to get one more pulse in that rotation. Um, Try to... um, if you're just growing spring wheat um, with canola, just one of those four years, can you try to get pulses in that rotation? And, you know, pulses are not suitable on all acres for rock reasons or um, for season length if it's faba beans, but it's it's slowly trying to inch towards that or subbing out a spring wheat with a winter wheat when you have an early enough harvest. And I think it's... Um, Again, I go back to some of my first comments that the benefits of diversifying rotations, We there's countless research showing how good winter wheat is for the system, how good pulse crops are for the rotation, and maybe not just taking the easy road, but trying to get those elements into our crop rotations, even in in baby steps, and to, to start small and see where we can go. I think the baby steps aspect is is an important piece, right? Uh, you want to dip your toe in, get an idea of what this means for management, what this means for markets, what this means for logistics on farm. Um, there's many factors that go into it, and you'd hate to see a good potential direction get ruined um, by, you know, figuring out the hard way that there's things that are going to impact other farm operations and to get an awareness, a simple awareness of that by starting small and then managing that more successfully in future years, as you grow to understand what that means for your operation and logistics and spraying and all of those things. Um, it uh, grows, grow small, but grow strong. I think it might be um, a good way to think about these things and, and 
open up opportunities to um, diversify and, and mitigate risk and open market opportunity for the farm. Yeah, absolutely. And I so wish I could give that one simple answer, but I think the simple answer is take what you've got and continually try to improve, even if that is the the baby steps and everyone has different constraints on different fields and different geographies and whatever you can do to diversify, um, start making those baby steps. So I imagine there's, um, uh, you know, we'll, as you mentioned, it sounds like hopefully we'll be getting more research into these concepts into the future. And um, there's a lot of groups that are uh, investing into this project and these these resilient rotation projects. Who's involved in this? Um, this research has been supported by funding from Western Grains Research Foundation, Alberta Wheat Commission, SAS Wheat, Alberta Pulse Growers, SAS Canola, Manitoba Crop Alliance, and the Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada program through the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, which is a provincial, federal, territorial initiative. So a lot of parties and a lot of different areas involved in this, and it, it shows the importance and um you know, all of these groups are investing in in what the producers are asking for. So it's it's great to see this, and it's great to see so many people involved. So, is there anything else you want to share? Uh, share yeah. So we... I want a couple of promotions. You know, these fact sheets are on the WGRF website. So if you do, uh, Google resilient rotation fact sheets, they will pop up. And um, you know, you really need to dig into this for your individual operations, your individual geography, and, and take a look at that. So I'd encourage you to check those out. And I do have a survey out to really understand what's driving um, producer decisions and constraints in terms of rotations. So I think Jeremy will put that in the show notes. And if you're kind enough to follow the link and take five minutes to complete that for me, it'd be greatly appreciated. And I just want to put a huge shout out to the scientific team under Quee's leadership um, that, you know, this is a multifaceted, lots of expertise has gone into this. And I am just thankful to be helping to deliver the message for it. Thanks so much, Sherry. It's a pleasure to chat with you as always. And I look forward to hopefully in four years talking about the eight years of, of data we have on this and what it means for producers. But I'm sure I will talk to you before then anyway, Sherry. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jeremy. I appreciate the, the conversation as always. Thanks for listening to the Growing Point Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to rate, review, and share this podcast with all of your friends. This helps us grow and get our message out. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to Alberta Wheat or albertabarley.com and sign up for our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles, interviews, and the newsletter. See you next time.